Welcome. Pull up a seat, relax, and pour yourself a drink. You're invited to listen in on Bean and Bowman share life stories and personal perspectives. Okay, hi. It's uh, it's good to uh, good to be speaking with you again. How are you today? I'm just fine. Uh, I have no complaints. I'm That's able good. to sit up and take sit up and take nourishment. Everything is going fine. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm really really excited about today's topic. Um, it's uh, I think it's I think this is going to be uh, something people are going to want to review over and over again. The topic today is lessons learned from life's superstars I have known. And the I have known, that's that you have known. And I'm just really, uh, I have to tell you that the conversations that we've had over the over the many, many years have often been peppered by these incredible people that you somehow uh, meet. It's amazing. I, I've, I have never known anybody to uh, encounter so many amazing people. And here you've you've isolated it down. I'm sure you've had to whittle the list down. Um, it wasn't an easy task. You're going to give us four of them, and we're going to hear about those life lessons that you've learned from these these superstars. So take it away. Yeah, okay. Before I start, I must tell you that I got my hearing aids yesterday, and I've come to the conclusion that I haven't heard a word you said for the last two and a half years. But that's, that's a whole other subject. Now that I, who are you, by the way? I, I um, it, some guy from the big eye with a beard. I, I don't know who we are. In any event, um, I have come to that. So the first person that uh, I have known and uh, was uh, commonly referred to by the vast public as Ann Landers. Actually, she was uh, the most, you know, a uh, very popular uh, columnist. Her real name was Epi Letterer. She was married to my uncle Jules. And uh, Jules was the guy that started Budget Rent-A-Car. So she was she wrote a column that uh, offering advice to the lovelorn uh, that was read all over the world by millions of people, literally millions of people. She was responsible for encouraging me to become a writer. Uh, and I did of three books and a column called The Business Mind that's read by about 15 to 20,000 people monthly on the subject of the psychology of creative marketing. There's marketing and then there's creative marketing. It's a big difference other than the word. One of the events that comes to mind. Uh, dealing with my Aunt Epi, who was very, very, very well-known, very popular. Her picture was in, in in thousands of newspapers every day, so people were familiar with what she looked like. I was uh, given the job of picking her up at the airport because she's coming in to visit my parents. So I was sitting at the gate at the time, and there was a guy sitting next to me, and I happened to open the, the, the newspaper to her column. And he looked at the column, and he said, um, Oh, you read the Ann Landers column? I said, you know, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I, I never said I was there to pick her up. because uh, uh, He says, you know what? I'm her biggest fan. I said, well, you know, that could be a dubious distinction. But I said, you read it every day? Oh, I never miss it. I live my life by what she says. I never miss it. I love that woman. She's fantastic. So she gets off the plane. I get up. She gets up. She comes over and gives me a hug. And he looks right at her and, and looks right at me and says, well, it was nice talking with you. He had no idea that that was her. If, if I'd have told him it was her, he'd have probably 
required, uh, you know, some life-saving support. Uh, the guy would have flipped out. So as we're walking down the hall to get the bags, uh, she said, thank you so much for not mentioning who I was. So I said, it's my pleasure. And then, and then the other, uh, she was uh, she was actually the most popular columnist in the world at one time. It's quite a distinction. Um, the other thing was when she decided to leave, I was given the job to take her to the airport. And I said, so, uh, you know, where are you going? She says, I'm going to, I'm going to Washington. She actually lived in Chicago, but she said, I'm going to Washington. I said, what are you doing in Washington? She said, I'm going to spend uh, the weekend with the Kennedys at the White House. So I said, you want to take me with you? She said, no. I said, okay, you always have a choice. I mean, you can, you can do whatever you want to do. And that is the story of uh, knowing Ann Lander. She encouraged me to write. And I've been a successful writer and have written 175 articles for a magazine. I have 20,000 readers every month. And but for her encouragement uh, and me sending her my original, some original tryout articles, I, I doubt that I would have been the writer I am today. So I owe I really owe her quite a bit. She had one daughter named Margot who is live, who lives in Boston. She's uh, born in March. I was born in August. So she's my older cousin. And um that's the story of Ann Landers. That's that's absolutely amazing. And you know, I I grew up reading Ann Landers as well. Um, you know, I'm from Toronto, and obviously her reach was not just in the United States, also in Canada, and probably all around the world. Uh, she probably had all sorts of people who would turn to her. What I'm interested in is is the fact that she inspired you to be a writer, and when I think about that, I think about what that, what does that mean? What does that mean to you to know that the power of writing is very, very, is, is in fact a power is in fact, is in fact something that can change people's lives. When I think about, if you think about Inlanders for a moment, so people would ask her a question and she would give a, an answer of advice, which I'm assuming that many people then heeded her advice they would follow her advice so that's an incredible influence on on others what does that what does that mean to you what did that mean to you when you started thinking about what is writing what is writing what that's what is the, what is its I, I power agree. yeah if you, uh, and and not ev not everybody's a writer until somebody tells you that you are because you you tend to think maybe perhaps you're not you're not a really a, a writer but um, in my case, it happens to be a sort of a natural thing for me to do. And you, and I do influence people and I do get, uh, I do get emails from the readership saying that, you know, I, I, I love the article and it's changed my thinking on what I do and, um, uh, you know, keep doing it. I love the article and I'm, I'm actually the, um, uh, I, 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 yeah, there's only three or four columnists in this magazine and I'm one of them and I had to try out to get the job. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't, I just, I uh, remember my editor, he said to me, well, send me what you got and we'll see if you're any good. And then I went on to become real good. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually got uh, a major award from the coin laundry association who I write for that's only given to one person. And that that's one person out of thousands Amazing. for my contributions to the industry. So as somebody who has this track record, what advice would you give, I mean, you received advice from Ann Landers. What advice would you give others who may be thinking about the idea of getting into writing? They haven't really 
pursued it so much and uh, and now they're listening to us right now. What advice would you offer them? Well, not everybody can write. Not everybody has the word talent to write. It's about how it's expressed in words. Uh, so if you think you can write, then submit somebody some writing to somebody and in, in the, you know, they're honest, they'll tell you whether they're interested in saying more or saying less. Very good. Okay, let's move on to the second person lessons learned from life's superstars. Well, the second one is a fellow by the name of Dick Butkus, who used to be number 51 for the Chicago Bears. Um, likely the best linebacker of all time. Played uh, for Chicago for a number of years. Great, big, powerful on the field, but off the field, a gentle giant. And I uh, I used to do television commercials back the, at the time that he was doing them. And um, I got invited to be in this uh, television commercial for uh, for um, big boy restaurants. And he was the star. And I wasn't the star, but they asked me if I would pick him up at the airport. And I did. So I had a chance to uh, ride with Dick Butkus all the way from the airport to the studio. And he turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful guy. And uh, off the field, he was nothing like he was on the field. When I met him, um, he was doing a lot of TV commercials. And as I said, on this particular occasion, I was doing a TV commercial for big boy restaurants. And he was a star. I, I picked him up at the airport. We drove to the studio for the shoot. He was a great guy. He encouraged me to keep doing commercials, even gave me his number in Malibu and invited me to visit him there if I ever happened to get out to California. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame subsequently in 1979 on the field. He was called the animal, the enforcer, the maestro of mayhem. He was six foot three, 245, and he would take your head off and not have to get paid for it. So Dick Butkus was Dick Butkus. I was encouraged to do more television commercials. And in fact, I ended up doing literally... Um, a hundred television commercials, found out I was good at it. And uh, he he's the one that encouraged me to do it. The, the thought that I would ever actually meet Dick, but Dick Butkus was uh, something that never entered my mind. I mean, I used to see him play on television and uh, they, they, the other players were literally, literally afraid of him. But when he was sitting next to me in the car, he was just a regular guy. Amazing. Amazing. So, it's, it, you know, it, it makes me think about this whole idea of image versus reality. Right. The image that uh, is conveyed through the uh, TV medium and then the actual person, you know, so here you are sitting in the car with someone known as the animal or the enforcer. I mean, uh, if, if that were the case, I would imagine that you one would feel rather intimidated or frightened just like his image would be on the field and yet you're describing somebody you called him a gentle giant you talked about somebody who sounded like very much a mentor somebody who was encouraging a regular guy what how does that work how do we balance that image that you want to portray on the football field he's got to be the tough guy he's got to be the enforcer because that's how he's going to win how do you balance that or how do you live with that duality of having that tough image Versus the reality of him being, as you say, a regular guy. Well, that, you know, I went through that experience myself when I ended up doing, um, doing, you know, hundreds of TV commercials in this, in the Detroit market. I remember um, I was very popular in Detroit. People would recognize me everywhere. Uh, I remember one guy came up to me and said, you were either my fifth grade teacher or I saw you on TV. 
I said, well, I was, I really was never your fifth grade teacher. You, you saw me on TV and I was very popular everywhere I went. People would, would just walk up to me. Uh, and, and, um, I remember I was shopping with my wife and, uh, three girls would look, kept look pointing at me and giggling. And they went up to her and she, and they said, is that the laundry guy? And she said, yeah, that that's him. They, they said, is, is he friendly? Can we talk to him? <laughs> and she said, oh, yeah, he's very friendly. You can you can talk to him. And then when they did talk to me, they they said something about the fact that they were they were a little afraid to do to approach me. But once they did, I just they're like a regular person. They couldn't get over it. And the only difference was that I was on television and they weren't. So it's it does have that. It does have that effect. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. It sounds like um, it. You, and you, these you, falling yeah. into my life. I think uh, I think I met as many famous people as uh, Johnny Carson. Uh, yes. at one point actually probably not but nevertheless uh, you certainly uh, you certainly have met your fair share and I, uh I, yeah it's, serend- it's serendipitous they seem to find me i don't go looking for them but they do find me um my third one is ve- you'll i think you'll find very interesting mm-hmm. as we all know uh sadly uh um jack kennedy the president of the united states was assassinated in dallas on november 22nd 1963 and then the next day, fellow by the name of uh, Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald and killed him because, on t- which I happened to see on TV live, and uh, because uh, we don't know for sure why he did it. Uh, there's a lot of theories out there as to why he did it, but nonetheless, he uh, he definitely did it, and uh, he did he did shoot Lee Harvey Oswald, and. Um, who everybody did believe at the time uh, killed John, John F. Kennedy. And um, it so happens that the business I was in at the time um, was building dry cleaning plants. And uh, Jack Ruby's brother, Earl owned a dry cleaning plant near where my company is. So I got a phone call uh, uh, some days later from Jack Ruby's brother, Earl, and said he would like to meet with me about buying a uh, new press for his dry cleaning establishment. And so I, there I was shortly thereafter sitting in front of Jack Ruby's brother, Earl. Hmm. And while I was talking to him, he sort of spaced out a little bit and said, uh, he said, I, uh, I really got to get that gun. And I said, which gun are you talking about, Earl? He said, the gun my brother shot Lee Harvey Oswald with. And um, I said, uh, why do you want the gun? And because um, he switched from the press conversation to the gun conversation. He said, because I was offered $250,000 for it. And I want to, I have to pay the expenses on my, his brother had died by that time uh, from cancer. And he said, I have to pay the expenses on my brother's estate. And um, I said, um, I just sort of, and he sort of got into a zone, not the zone we were in, and he sort of looked off into space. And I realized subsequent to that, many years from that, that I could have literally asked him anything. And I am pretty sure that he knew exactly what happened and why his brother shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And if there was a conspiracy or not, and I'm very convinced he would have told me at the time. And had he told me that at the time, I likely would have been the only one that knew in maybe in the world. And I missed my opportunity. And that was a, that was a very interesting thing. 
that I found very interesting. And it also turned out that I was um, in some way related to John F. Kennedy, uh, not not uh, not from a relative standpoint. And when I was 21 or 22 years old, I was diagnosed with Addison's disease, which is the failure of my adrenal gland to produce cortisone. And it so happened that John F. Kennedy had Addison's disease. It's a very rare disease, hmm. uh, only one per 100,000 people. So um, I uh, had an aunt by the name of Sylvia, and she wrote a letter to President Kennedy saying that I had been put in the hospital with Addison's disease. And he apparently, um, he never came back and, and wrote directly to me, but he had his assistant, uh, a fellow by the name of Ralph Dungan, who became, who was his special assistant, talked to him about that. And he told Ralph to write me a letter on his behalf. And um, I'm going to read you the letter I got from Ralph Dungan, who, uh, who went on to become ambassador to Chile after that. But he was part of, uh, of the, 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 the close group of, uh, of followers to John F. Kennedy. And it said the letter was um, written to, to me. Called, Dear Mr. Bean, the president was sorry to hear that you've had to, had to take time out from Michigan State uh, University for therapy in Mount Carmel Hospital. Because he is so pressed for time, he can't write personally. And he asked me to convey you his very best wishes. The president hopes you will let nothing discourage you in your efforts to regain your health. For the miracles of modern medicine are numerous these days. Patience and prayer are, I am sure you know, powerful instruments for good. Sincerely, Ralph A. Dug, Dungan, Special Assistant to the President. So I had some relationship. I had some relationship uh, in, in that I didn't even know I had with, with John F. Kennedy. And it came out later that he did, in fact, have Addison's disease. And that's why he, he read my letter. Whoa, so it amazing. was not only that I had contact with Earl Ruby, but I also had some contact with John F. Kennedy, um, who was assassinated. That's amazing. And that and that letter that you received uh, from the White House—that's uh, uh, well, it's a keeper, and you've you've kept it all these years. And uh, yeah, it's yes. understandable why. So it's very interesting that sometimes uh, health or an illness or recovery is the is the binding uh, material right between people who've never met each other, uh, different uh, stations in life, and here it is, both of you having Addison's, and that's and that's the the glue that's connecting you to President Kennedy. Amazing. As far as your uh, your incredible story with uh, Earl, uh, with uh, um, with Earl Ruby, uh, 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 Jack Ruby's brother, so. Here's the question. And the question is about questioning. The question is about questioning. You know, there you were standing uh, in front of somebody who held in incredibly exclusive information. And now I don't know if you decided not to ask, if you just didn't think about not asking. Um, maybe you even thought it's not appropriate to ask. I don't know what was going through your mind at the time. But the question is, how do you know when is and when is not the correct time to ask a question? Well, we were on we were on different levels at the time. He was considerably older than me, and I was sort of taken back by the fact that he sort of spaced out and started sharing inside information with me. Um, uh, that he must have 
high, been beyond, it must have been beyond his control, or I would looked like I was very approachable. Uh, but all I had to do was ask him when he was talking about the gun, you know, anything I wanted to, and I'm quite sure he would have he would have told me. And then at that point in time, if if Jack Ruby told anybody anything about what he knew to be the case and what relationships involved Lee Harvey Oswald and everybody else, um, he would have been the one they told. He would have told his brother. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I, haven't, I I get a sense that he also felt a, a comfort level with you. Um, he most likely obviously didn't feel threatened by you. Didn't no. uh, He didn't perceive you to be a reporter or, 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 a, or a, a detective or anybody who we may have to have his guard up. He very clearly his guard was down. And that also says a lot about his comfort level with you. Yeah, it it would have depended upon a number of variables at the time. It, uh, I don't know. He was, uh, you know, could have been under extreme stress and needed to vent himself a little bit. And I looked like somebody that could cause him no harm. Mm-hmm. Or All I had to do was ask. I mean, he would have, he shared the price of the gun he was going to get with me. And, the fa- and, and subsequently, he did get the gun. Mm. And he did sell the gun. And... Um, it was, uh, and to this day, there is still that same cleaner uh, in <laughs> Detroit, uh, run by his son-in-law. Oh, that's amazing! That's really called amazing. Earl Ruby, called Earl Ruby Cleaners. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's uh, you and I have uh, have a mutual interest uh, in the whole JFK story. Um, I don't think a week goes by without us sharing information between us, uh, new insights or questions uh, about that. And and I would actually like to see a um, perhaps an upcoming podcast uh, where you and I, you know, just focus on all the different ins and outs and the different theories and the different thoughts regarding the uh, JFK story, the assassination, and the. And, and and everything swirling around that. But we'll save that for another podcast. I want to hear about your fourth superstar. Yeah, my fourth superstar is is highly, highly impressive. Uh, it's a fellow by the name of Gordon McNeil, special agent in the FBI. Gordon McNeil led the worst shootout in FBI history a number of years ago. Uh, two agents were killed and Gordon was severely wounded, actually. They made a movie about uh, the event starring David Soul. And you may recognize the name David Soul from the television series Starsky and Hutch, popular TV series a number of years ago. The shootout was against two of the most psychopathic killers ever to go against up against law enforcement. And Gordon played a key role subsequent to that in the kidnapping case in California of Polly Class. There was a young girl who was kidnapped, uh, and he. Um, he also held the FBI's highest medal uh, uh, medals for valor uh, from the from the shootout. Uh, he became um, uh, subsequent to that. He became the leading agent uh, on child abduction cases. He retired from the FBI in 1997. Became head of global securities for Excel Logics in London. My wife and I met Gordon and his wife on a cruise ship. Um, in as much as we were seated at the same table for uh, dinner every evening with Gordon and his wife and a number of other people. It turns out he was trailing a suspect on some issue undercover. He couldn't disclose it to me. He did say when I asked what he did, that he was in, simply in law enforcement, and um, which turned out to be the FBI. Uh, I had followed the news of the shootout 
for some reason on television. I was interested in that. Uh, that occurred in Florida. And, and he informed me that he was the one who actually led it. And he was severely wounded at the time. Uh, we then became very, very close friends with Gordon and his wife, Elaine. And we, uh, we traveled with them to many places throughout the world, including St. Bart's and the French West Indies. Uh, stayed in, we stayed in Mikhail Bereshnikov's magnificent estate. Ten-day Adriatic cruise up the coast of Italy, below Sicily, to visit all the famous cities. We even went to the Vatican with the, the, with the McNeils. And our trip to Alaska was also very memorable. Uh, Gordon was uh, the most impressive person by all criteria I have ever met, a true hero uh, by all standards. He, he subsequently met with Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office. It's almost hard to talk about him. Uh, I can't begin to describe how bad I felt when he passed away from cancer. Uh, far too young. I uh, was so fortunate to have had this wonderful, um, humble person um, as a friend. There will be, in my opinion, never an, another Gordon McNeil. Uh, he was literally, literally amazing. Uh, he was an exemplary person. He introduced myself and my wife to Tip O'Neill one day. He knew virtually everybody who was the Speaker of the House uh, when Jimmy Carter was president. And he was um, he was a role model for just um, probably anybody. He was uh, he was quite quite a person. The single most impressive person I've, I've ever met, a wonderful, wonderful person. So I was very fortunate to have met him, and it was serendipitous that I would have met him because I there I was, I had taken a severe interest in that shootout in Miami, and uh, I don't know why I did, but lo and behold, serendipitously later, I met the guy who led it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, those, I- are the four, those are the four people that had uh, the most effect on me. If you want to know more about Gordon McNeil in depth, you can find him all over the Internet. Just look up Gordon McNeil, FBI, and uh, you will um, learn a great deal about a great person. I do have a few questions regarding your your encounter with uh, Gordon. Uh, First of all, here you are uh, interested in the shootout in Miami, and I would only, you know, I would assume that you're looking at it from the perspective of the the drama of the whole thing, the excitement of the whole thing, the danger aspect of the whole thing. And in a sense, you're very much a, you know, you're, you're an observer watching this. You're, you're, you're very distant from the actual experience. And then lo and behold, you wind up being on a cruise with the, the main player in that shootout. So now you go from a very bird's eye abstract third party removed perspective and boom you're now sitting at the table with this man and his wife so some, now these this is a human being sitting in front of you who was who was a key in that in that drama and i guess my 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 question is is how do you then go back and think about that shootout that you watched on tv here you are you're actually sitting you're eating you're having your steak and your your fish and whatever with with gordon and his wife and now you're are you replaying what you saw and thinking my god this same guy was in that unbelievable situation how do you now relate back to that original situation yeah um you know he was very humble Still had part of uh, a bullet in his upper back, 
And he was just, he, it was his job and he did it. Right. Right. But how did you, and how did you think about that incident after that? Did it, did it change your perspective of that, the incident itself of the shootout itself? Uh, yeah, it took a lot of nerve and a lot of nerve to do what he did. Yeah. And if you watch the, if you watch the, the movie uh, that they did the FBI murders or whatever, uh, you'll, you'll see the dramatization of it and you'll see what he actually did. And these, these two people they, that they went up against were um, the lowest of the low. They would, they would shoot you just if you looked at them. Mm-hmm. And he put himself in harm's way. Right. So that leads me to the next question. Did he ever discuss with you or share with you his philosophy of overcoming fear? Yeah, we used, to t- we used to talk about it. He even took me, when we went to visit him in Miami, he even took me to the place where it occurred mm-hmm. in sh- events. And uh, it just was, um, it, it just was, uh, I was sitting sitting in, in Michigan and just it was another news event. It caught my attention. I never thought I'd be having dinner with him every night. Cruise, and then get and travel the world with him and his wife subsequent to that and be friends with them for many years. It sounds like it was a very, very special friendship, and and truly he is uh, he's missed. All right, that was amazing. That was absolutely fantastic, and I think that our listeners are going to enjoy hearing hearing um, about these four superstars and and your relationship with them. Uh, really, a wonderful, wonderful interview. All right, we're ready for the joke. Okay, the joke. This is the funniest joke I ever heard. I, okay, uh, I can't help but I can't get over it. Actually, I tried, but I can't. Um, there was a fellow that lived in the city all of his life, and uh, he never had gone hunting for anything. So he decided it was time that he experienced that experience. So he got himself a shotgun, and he was going to go out in the woods duck hunting. So he goes out in the woods walking around, and he sees a duck flying over the head. So he shoots at the duck, and he hits the duck, and the duck falls in the farmer's backyard. And when he went over to get it, the farmer came out of the house, and the farmer was this great big monster of a guy. And he said, what are you doing in my backyard? He says, I, I came to get my duck. He said, that's not your, that's not your duck. It fell in my backyard. And the laws of uh, out in the country here, if it's in my backyard, it's my duck. But let's settle this. Let's settle this way we settle things in the country. Here's what we'll do. I will kick you in the groin as hard as I possibly can. And he was a huge guy. It's a, and, and, and then when you recover from that, if you recover, then you get yourself together and then you can do the same to me. And then whoever's standing at the end will get to keep the duck. So I said, well, I have no choice. He said, no, that's the way we do it in the country. So the guy, he says, OK. And the guy hauls off and kicks him in the groin so hard that the guy keels over, passes out, takes him a half an hour to recover doesn't know what his name is when he wakes up finally. And he said, well, I guess it's, whoa, that was terrible. He says, well, I guess it's my turn to kick you. And the farmer says, no, you can have the duck. <laughs> I, think uh, is, I think that it's the funniest joke I ever heard. You have <laughs> projected into the future a little bit. I think one of the things that uh, we, we neglected to mention at the beginning of the podcast is that you and I are related, and uh, uh, that uh, that you are my son-in-law, and we do have a number of conversations. Um, although, as I said before, we started the podcast. I just got fitted for hearing aids yesterday, 
And I became convinced that I haven't heard a word you said for the last two and a half years. Right. Uh, I wanted to know who you were. <laughs> uh, I do. I do recognize the and and that's the name of that tune. Very good. Very very good. Well, okay, that gives us much to ponder. <laughs> this has been wonderful. It gives you some material that you can use. Yes, it does. <laughs> All right. Listen, Steve, thank you so, so much. This has been a wonderful conversation today. And uh, looking forward to our next podcast on Bean and Bowman. Yes. It's been my pleasure, as always. All right. Thank you. Take Take care. care. Bye.